So I'm digging this music. It's Jimi Hendrix, and I know one of the 27 Club members. Another foxy lady who's a 27 Club member is uh, Janis Joplin. You know, I'd love to be a musician one day, and I hope I'm not a member of the 27 Club. If I am, I'll get super famous for the rest of my non-life. Tons of people in the 1970s were 27 Club members, and that's pretty weird. That was like the huge birth of the 27th Club. And then in the 90s, Kurt Cobain died of suicide. Very recently, Amy Winehouse in 2011 died of alcohol poisoning. I mean, I definitely don't think that they're more famous because they died young, because some of the people on the list in Wikipedia, I don't fucking recognize. <laughs> definitely the ones that were already really big icons in American society are more immortalized, yeah, so to speak. I think a lot of rock stars die young because, well, I mean, it's not just rock stars that die young. A lot of people who are really smart die young, and a lot of people who are really smart are victims of, like, mental illnesses, and they overstress their bodies. People who are intellectuals and who create beautiful things often stay up all night. They, they wear out their bodies, they wear out their minds using drugs because they're experimenting with their intellectuality, they're experimenting with their own creativity. So they really, as an intellectual person, as a musician, you tend to put a lot of stress on your body and eventually it gives out. A lot of people say there's a conspiracy in the 27 Club, and I'm not a huge believer in conspiracies, but there's a lot of proof behind it, you know? <laughs> I mean, musicians totally give their all to everything they do. They put their heart and soul into their work. And when you put your heart and soul into your work, your life force, like, to maybe diminishes or something. Something about extending yourself into a place that you don't really can be identified. You're crossing the veil. When you pull music out of stuff, the way I write music, the way that I get lyrics and tunes, they just pop into my head, and then they're there all the time. And I feel like it's all there already, you know? It's like there's an invisible bookshelf in the world that you're pulling these songs out of. They're not mine. It's like I reach across the veil and I pull them out. And when you have such a close connection to the unknown and this world that, this world of music that just everybody who's a musician has access to, you're so close to the spiritual and the unknown. It doesn't. Okay, so I heard, so we're on the bus. My dad to go to Dallas. One time, when I was little, uh, my dad a, ran a, when I was little, my dad a man came out of the restaurant. Yeah, it's a story. Well, that was a shock when it actually happened. Nobody was really that surprised, too. There are people, I mean, I'm sure that everybody's got those feelings, certain people, everybody knows people that mm. you just have that feeling that they're not going to be, they're not going to be 70 years old ever, you know. They're... People over 32, they're, they're not meant to understand what Kurt my mother that if I didn't quote straighten up quote I was going to end up either in jail 
or insane asylum by the time I was 21. The acid rock musician died today in a London hospital, apparently from an overdose of drugs. Hendrix flailed his trick guitar into some of the most unusual sounds of an unusual music. This is the end, my only friend. Leave us poor immortals alone. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam, and we're here to tell you a story. Every week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. We just want to thank everybody that's reached out to us through writing reviews and out on Twitter and followed us. We like to post funny, fun things about our podcast, sometimes we post interesting articles, and we encourage you to reach out to us on there. And this week we've heard from a couple of new people. Yes, and we love all of our new addicts. Someone's addicted to our podcast, guys. It's like heroin. It is like heroin, which is a perfect lead-in to this week's topic. So this week's topic is something that I grew up hearing a lot. You know, people always think that I'm I'm a nerd or that was a nerd in school. But in the uh, Immortal Freaks and Geeks television show, I would have been with James Franco's freaks group and my friends were obsessed with the 27 club and kurt cobain's death okay i find that all very believable but then again i've met your friends over the past 12 years i have met them once or twice and yes they are soundly in the franco camp so what is the 27 club because it sounds like a poor man's version of the 700 club yes but there's unfortunately no fire and brimstone here Oh, I think there's plenty of fire and brimstone, but not the kind they're looking for on the 700 Club. Maybe what they're warning you about. (laughs) The 27 Club is a great, you know, urban legend uh, or myth that is really popular in the rock and roll mythos. So the 27 Club, or some people call the Forever 27 Club. Which is too much like the Forever 21 brand. (laughs) Yeah, no, I just, mm -mm. no, I like 27 Club better. It purports that lots of great rock musicians die at the age of 27. I think lots of rock musicians die at the age of everything. No, and that's really true, because if you think about the rock and roll lifestyle, it is not exactly a healthy lifestyle. Although Keith Richards seems to be doing really well. He is the cockroach of the rock and roll community. Well, that's because he made a deal with the devil, but that's for a whole other episode. Oh, I cannot wait to do that episode. We are doing that episode. Yeah, so for those of you who haven't realized it yet, I'm a little bit country and Jake's a little bit rock and roll. So I didn't grow up with the same cast of characters on my stereo that he did. You know, I grew up listening to Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Conway Twitty, etc. So this is not something I heard about until I reached an age where I thought it sounded silly. No, I can see how it would inspire the adolescent imagination. So interestingly, the first thing that I ever heard about the 27 Club was if you haven't reached greatness by the time you're 27, you never will, which is sort of a perversion of the myth that if you're a great rock star, you're going to die when you're 27. Right, and I think adolescents and people in the younger age group really like this because it says you know, that you have to reach fame, that you're going to reach this important level at a young age mm-hmm. and then be immortalized. Mm. forever with your huge success and all of your contributions to music. Right, and I can see that how that would be attractive because if you're 13, you've got 14 more years 
to make it all happen. Right. You've got plenty of time to However, get there. However, if you're 26. <laughs> yeah, you do not have much time left. But you have plenty of time to get your garage band going. And another interesting thing is that scientists have suggested that we are really interested in analyzing death because... I mean, these investigations make us better able to stave it off. You know, we look at obituaries and look at the ages of people that have died and say, oh, well, that's that's not the norm. That's not what's going to happen. So by having factual data to shield ourselves with, we can avoid putting ourselves in the similar situation. Right. It's like women and rape statistics and things like that. Like carrier keys between, you know, this scary emails that come out that are like oh if you just carry your keys between your index finger and your middle finger with one jutting out you'll be able to take down any assailant who comes your way of course this is really stuck in the conscious in the modern consciousness and it's really always told as a though this is kind of an old story that it's been around since the founding of rock and roll yeah because some of the early members and the big members of the group include roll call Roll call. Brian Jones. Janis Joplin. Jimi Hendrix. Jim Morrison. And I think that's it for the originals. That's kind of the original big group, and they all died very close to each other in the 70s. Within two years to the day. And... Bum, bum, bum! Okay, sorry. I'll stop with the sound effects now. But this really all came into light in the 90s with Kurt Cobain's death. Yes, so... This is my favorite bit of the legend, is where the term 27 Club came from. When reporters knocked on the door of Wendy O'Connor, who was Kurt Cobain's mother, to report that her son was dead and ask her how she felt about it, which, fuck you guys, that's terrible. But anyway, when they did that, she said, now he's gone and joined that stupid club. I told him not to join that stupid club. And she was referring to the club of musicians who died when they were 27 years old. And that's where we get the really catchy title press ran with it and it really became a thing and i think my posters of 27 club members at walmart that's not true if kurt cobain launched it into the zeitgeist i think that when amy winehouse died and people wanted to like talk about that they really really grabbed onto it like you couldn't read a headline about her death without reading that she was a member of the 27 club which is questionable at best right well there's no doubt that she was 27 when she died okay fair yeah numerically but does she fit in with that our game-changing artists that are really included in the group with this being such in the press of course someone's going to try to disprove it oh we've got a I love the debunkers let's go to the debunkers yeah because we we're kind of in that group ish so there was a study done There were several studies done. Looking at dead musicians spanning seven decades, from 1950 to 2010, looking at their deaths. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the ways they tried to say, oh, well, these are influential musicians, Mm -hmm. is if they had a number one record on the charts, or number one song on the charts. Okay, you know who had a number one record on the charts? Smash Mouth. Also, Chumbawamba was on the charts, I'm pretty sure. And even worse, I think it was in the UK. And a lot of these musicians didn't chart in the UK that we've already listed. But okay, sure, that's influential. Let's go with that story. With that, you know, they identified that only 1.6% of musicians died at 27. And that really the highest frequency, with 2.2%, was the age of 56. Well, that just doesn't have the same cachet, does it? Right, and definitely doesn't give that youth immortality. It's so important to this story. Right. That's like middle-aged 
like nonsense. Like that's not even it's not old, it's not young, it's just sort of nondescript and bleh. I don't have any association with age fifty six. I can't even think of that's an older young person in my mind. I'm gonna go with young because I wanna be generous. So when then I listen to this when I'm fifty six I'll feel better. So yeah, that's relatively young age, but not like shocking. Right. It's definitely a lot younger than your average deaf. But like you said, I really don't think that the study's very valid. Their criteria for what makes an influential musician is ridiculous. I agree. And I I think that influence is sort of an intangible. Like, I don't think you can systematize criteria for influence. Right, but let's look at some of these extremely influential musicians that are members of the 27 Club. All right. Let's go in chronological order of death. Sound good to you? Okay. So, in the beginning, there were the Stones. The founding member of the Stones was named Brian Jones. He was a middle-class London kid who did well in school, presumably, and was going to be an optometrist, but decided not to, and decided to start a band instead. Yeah, he told his parents to... Fuck off, I think, is exactly what he said. I'm sure he said it in a nice accent, though. So he's really founded the Rolling Stones. He named the band. Keith and Mick went to see him play and later responded to an ad he posted looking for bandmates. And thus, the Rolling Stones were formed. And it's just gone down in history about how much these guys embodied that hard, partying, rock and roll lifestyle. At this point... Brian Jones did more than any of the others because he was a little bit older and he'd had some life experience. By the time he was 19, he'd fathered three illegitimate children. And at the time of his death, he had four. Um, None of those kids were uh, allowed to inherit anything from his estate, though. So he was not exactly father of the year. He was also into more hard drugs earlier than the other band members and sort of blazed a path of insanity for the other band members to follow. While being just this crazy partier, he was still a musical genius. He's really credited with making the sound of the stones. While I didn't write the lyrics, he brought in a lot of that blues and other types of music into it, playing sitar on Paint It Black. I mean, you know that, like, you know what that is, right? You know it. He was a multi-instrument musician who could kind of pick up any instrument and play it. And in the beginning, when the band was just doing covers of blues songs, that specialized sound, the signature sound, was really important. Because if you're just doing covers, how are you going to make yourself stand out? You have to be innovative. And he was. He was a pain in the ass, though. He would, like, not show up for gigs. He went to rehab a few times. He was just kind of a mess. Just a hot mess all the time. He looks like such a good kid. (laughs) I know. He's so blonde and, like, almost cherubic in the early pictures. And by the end, he's wearing, like, these gaudy, beautiful rock and roll clothes. Exactly what you're thinking of, like, boas and scarves and hats and things. So he looks, like, almost delicate in those. And he's supposed to be such a badass. But, yeah, he was a pain in the ass, apparently. Eventually, the band kind of decided that he was more trouble than he's worth, and they asked him to leave the band. There's a passage in Keith Richards' biography where he says, Mick and I drove up to the poo house to tell Brian that he was no longer going to be a part of the Rolling Stones. The poo house? The poo house. So with his considerable earnings from the Rolling Stones, he purchased a home that was formerly owned by A.A. Milne, 
of Winnie the Pooh fame. Of Winnie the Pooh fame. So Brian Jones lived in the Hundred Acre Wood. And in the Hundred Acre Wood, he liked to party. With several unsavory characters, dare I say. Not Piglet exactly. was not invited. <laughs> He had a serious honey addiction. So he was asked to leave the band, and he said he left the band. In a quote, he said, like, the Stones music is just not my taste anymore. The only thing that makes sense is for us to go our separate ways. Like, he'd only played slide guitar on a couple of tracks on their latest album at this time, and he wasn't feeling it. So at the Pooh house one night. And a little too much honey. And some sleeping pills, too. And a little alcohol, I'm sure. And he went for a swim in his heated pool, and he did not come back from that. That swim. There were three people at the home at the time that he died, and one of them was a nurse, and she pulled him out of the pool with the help of the others and tried to give him CPR. He was already dead by the time they got to him, and there was no more Brian Jones. And thus begins the 27 Club. Not a club yet, though. But so he died July 3rd, 1969. Mm-hmm. Interesting note about Jones and the Pooh House is that the new owners say that the Jones fans are not nearly as bad as the Pooh enthusiasts. When I read that, I was like, maybe my favorite fact from this entire book, which I just read a book called 27 by Harold Soons, I think is his name. And if you haven't read that, probably pause, go read it, and then join us when you're done. You You feel inspired? Are you sad that you're older than 27? Are you hopeful that you're going to be great by the time you're 27? Yeah, because we're uh, we're kind of sad. We're these people are all younger than us. And so the next member in our 27 Club is one of your favorites, even though you grew up listening to Hank Williams. I did grow up listening I, to you, Hank Williams. You had this CD in your six-disc CD changer. Yeah, back in the day. Whenever we met Mr. Jimi Hendrix. Mr. Jimi Hendrix. So through a weird confluence of circumstances, somehow when I was in ninth grade, I became mildly to moderately obsessed with Jimi Hendrix. And how could you not be? He's this enigmatic character from Seattle, Washington. He was half black and half Cherokee. And he had this really unique look about his face. And he wore kind of a wild afro. People who traveled with him early on said that he only carried his guitar with no strap or case, a change of clothes, and a pack of hair curlers. (laughs) So I thought that was awesome. He emerged as sort of this electric rock god. But he wasn't always like that. You know, whenever he was young, people kind of thought of him as the quieter, shy guy. Well, yeah, but he was still eccentric. He always wore loud clothes, which come to find out is because that's all he had. He would patch together his father's old wardrobe and things like that. He learned to play guitar on a broom. He grabbed a broom and carried it around making guitar noises. And then eventually he got his hands on a guitar that had one string, tried to play that for a while. And his father, who was kind of a bum, but did raise him without his mother, did buy him his first electric guitar. He restrung it and learned to play it left-handed and his father was like you should really try to play right-handed so he just learned how to play it both ways but he really earned his chops playing on the chitlin circuit the chitlin circuit is one of my favorite things just because its name is so wonderful it was a touring circuit kind of dedicated to blues and later motown music kind of r&b soul right aimed at black audiences yes And so he went through this process of touring on the Chitlin Circuit, which was a limited audience at the time. And who did he play with? B.B. King uh, was one of the guys that he played with. He and Miles Davis had kind of a mutual admiration society, but I don't think that came from the Chitlin Circuit. Yeah, so you could definitely say he probably 
picked up few little licks from B.B. King and some of these other great musicians. B.B. King liked him and kind of mentored him on the circuit. But he is famous for songs like Hey Joe and Purple Haze and Foxy Lady. If you've seen Wayne's World, you know Foxy Lady. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Think about it. Remember it? Okay, good. He recorded three albums, toured all the time. He founded Electric Ladyland Studios, Mm -hmm. which is... Still used today. Still an iconic studio. And he headlined Woodstock. Have you heard of Woodstock? I think there was like a little music festival. Little music festival. Headlined it. And the festival ran long, so he ended up playing on Monday morning. But when he came on stage, he started playing the Star Spangled Banner on his electric guitar. And it was just this gorgeous, glorious moment of this black man at a time when the civil rights movement had just had its heyday, and there were still, like, racial tensions, and the Vietnam War is going on, and everyone's kind of hating America and things, and hippies are protesting. And here he is on stage in front of a white audience playing this song in a way that speaks to the generation, and it's just sort of this beautiful, iconic moment in rock history that really can't be matched in political importance. And he was just such an iconic person, besides just his music, which is enough. Yeah, that would stand up. His persona and what he did on stage also just added to what a rock star was. He would play the guitar with his teeth. Uh, He lit a guitar on fire. He smashed guitars. He would play the guitar behind his back. I mean, he just was a force of nature. Crazy, ostentatious, gaudy clothing. He would wear like skin tight red pants and like orange shirts with scarves and hats. And I can't imagine why you're obsessed with him. He was so fabulous. I feel like I need more scarves in my wardrobe. I feel like if you want to be a rock star, that's probably a prerequisite. I don't know that being a pediatrician, you're going to need a lot of scarves. Yeah, that just sounds like they get pulled on. You'd be choked. (laughs) What a way to go. So how did he go? He was in Europe, and he was staying with his girlfriend. In London. And he took a few sleeping pills and aspirated and choked on his own vomit. Yeah. And died kind of in his sleep. How old was he? He was 27. What a coincidence, just like Brian Jones. Right, and he died on September 18th, 1970. He was hailed as the first black rock star, too. That's really important to note. Like, that was kind of already a legacy. So when he died, it was like this person who had already become a legend and already had their own kind of brand of fame was lost. And you know what? Less than a month later, more tragedy struck. In the rock and roll community. To another Woodstock musician. Mm. And we have to mention Texas. Apparently in every episode. This is Miss Janis Joplin from Port Arthur, Texas. Of course, after playing around in Texas and really kind of earning her chops, she moved to San Francisco, that whole Haight-Ashbury scene, and joined a band, The Big Brother. She just became the, the number one blues mama. She did. She was this little white girl from Texas who sang like she had the soul of Billie Holiday. She was often compared to Billie Holiday. She wore fur coats on stage and big glasses and hats and all the things that rock stars wear. And she actually received her fur coat as a gift from Southern Comfort because (laughs) because she was drinking straight from the bottle during performances and they decided that was giving them good press and raising brand awareness so they sent her a fur coat. Only a liquor company from New Orleans would do that. Yeah. I love that you said the other day when I was telling you that story they should have sent her a Mercedes Benz and you're so right. (laughs) 
Or color TV. Or color TV. She just sort of embodied that hippie spirit. Like, in fact, she said, boys, I just might be the world's first hippie pinup girl. And she kind of was. <laughs> like, she kind of had that spunk and spirit and spontaneity and just that soul. So she achieved some fame for songs like Peace of My Heart and Ball and Chain. But interestingly, she had more hits after she died, which a lot of these people did, with her posthumous release of Pearl, uh, which included Bobby McGee. Which is written by my biggest crush ever, Chris Christopherson. We've only seen him three times. Four. Four? Four. <laughs> He's still awesome. If you don't know who Chris Christopherson is, get your Google on and go find out. On Pearl was the song Me and Bobby McGee, which was probably her biggest hit. It went to number one. The album went to number one. And then another collection of her greatest hits went to number one in 1973. And so how did she die? She died of a heroin overdose in L.A. There seems to be a trend. Yeah. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Is that the trend you're seeing? Yeah, definitely. Right. So she was in a hotel, did some heroin, went and got a pack of cigarettes, went back to her room, and died. Didn't show up for recording the next day, and they thought that was weird, and then they saw her Porsche, not her Mercedes-Benz, parked outside the hotel, and they decided just to go check, opened the door, and found her dead. And she'd been dead since the night before. And her age at her time of death? She was 27. You are kidding me. This is getting spooky. So the next famous member of the 27 Club died on July 3rd, 1971. Two years to the day after Brian Jones. Spooky. Spooky. And that's Mr. Jim Morrison. Mr. Mojo Ryzen? The Lizard King, you say? The Lizard King. Okay. Who peed on the Alamo. I didn't know that. Recently, he had the charges dropped against him. Another Texas Texas. (laughs) tie-in! It's not an episode until someone commits a crime in Texas. Jim Morrison grew up in a military family that moved around a lot. His dad was eventually a rear admiral on a an aircraft carrier. And he mostly grew up in Florida. Uh, eventually, he moved out to L.A. to go to film school. And he was obsessed with philosophy and imagined that he would either become a poet or a filmmaker. But he was a bright kid, very intellectual. When he graduated high school, he asked for a collected works of Frederick Nietzsche. One of his classmates noticed that he was writing and read some of his poetry and decided it would make great song lyrics. Now, Morrison had never been particularly musically inclined, but he liked the idea of enlightenment through the way of Bacchus, sort of maybe going wild as a way to learn more, which is something that's cited by Nietzsche in in his essays. Well, it really fits with not only the rock idea of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but also what was going on in the 60s and 70s. I can see that, sure. Because all this is happening right after the Summer of Love mm-hmm. in Woodstock. But right, so he he did really model himself after Bacchus, and he was seen as just this sex guy, sex symbol, especially with those photos with him with his shirt off just on the cover. On the first album cover, yeah, he hated those photos. Hated them. He bitched about it all the time. He's like, people expect me to look like those photos. Nobody looks like they do in photos. Really, really complained about it. Toward the end of his life, he kind of got paunchy and grew a long beard and long hair. Bacchus like. Yeah. It should be noted that he was part of the band The Doors, which I don't think we've said yet. He also recorded six albums with the group. So they were a pretty influential band. They were touring around and people knew who they were. And he'd kind of become this beefcake icon, this sort of a teen idol, in addition to their cerebral intellectual rock cred. I do think it's interesting that he hated that so much. 
Oh, he hated it. Because he saw himself as this great philosopher and right. poet. So how did he die? In a bathtub. In Paris. Europe again. And it seems like probably a heroin overdose, but officially he had a heart attack in a bathtub in Paris. Related to drugs. Really, well, it's not in the death certificate, but yes, seems that way. So that was on July 3rd, 1971, as we said, and that meant that Mr. Mojo Risen was... 27. Oh my gosh, this is eerie. There were articles linking these four musicians for dying or during their 27th year of life at this time, but it wasn't widely recognized. There were just as many articles talking about how weird it was that they all had J's in their name. That is weird. Isn't it? So you know who is a huge fan of rock history and kind of knew about all of this? You. Yes. But also, Mr. Kurt Cobain of Nirvana fame. Of Nirvana fame, yes, that's the one. So he was born in Aberdeen, Washington, which was a little working class town that he says was pretty redneck, and that's a quote, which I didn't know there were rednecks in Washington, but whatever. And he kind of had that typical punk childhood where his parents got divorced and his mom left him and he had to live with his grandparents in a trailer. And he had ADHD and was a hyperactive kid who had trouble in school, even though he was bright. He believed that he never fit in and he said, I wondered if I was gay for a while because I just couldn't identify with anybody. He's like, I I wish I was just to piss off homophobes, but I'm not. <laughs> he was just sort of that smart ass punk kid. He had a really shitty relationship with his dad, too. Seems like they may have reconciled later. He and his mom did. Taking on that punk kind of screw off attitude, mixing it in with the disillusionment of youth coming out of the you can have it all, me, 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 80s. Overly commercialized, slick polished 80s. Right, he started, or was one of the founding members of the grunge movement coming out of Seattle. What is the grunge movement? Well, it's kind of what I was saying. It really took that very materialistic ideas of the 80s and turn them on their heads and that's when people started wearing you know old flannel and bathing yeah that was a big thing not bathing was a thing just google jared leto from my so-called life and you'll kind of get the whole vibe joker no not the joker before he was the joker this was the joker's youth war rebellion but yeah it was sort of a youth empowerment movement sort of empowered youthful rebellion and he wanted to be successful and i think he came around the right time to where there really was a outlet for it and an Mm -hmm. audience for it you know the outlet being mtv which really latched on to the grunge movement Mm -hmm. and really helped popularize it even though that seems completely counter to the whole ideas of the grunge movement but kurt really was kind of like that he had issues with authority he had he had really conflicting ideas about that and he wanted to be a commercial success but he also didn't want to sell out and that caused him a lot of inner turmoil there was sort of a a rawness to the music i think is something that is definitely cited in what defines the sound of grunge music is it's sort of raw. There are a lot of very concise, direct lines that seem pretty obvious, but when they're all cobbled together, have a really intricate meaning. Yeah, but different than the punk movement, which the whole point of punk in a general sense is to really just put the man, let your aggression out, really simple, short songs that are played fast and dirty, and the lyrics were very basic. 
these lyrics had much more of a poetic quality to them. It's more like a terse poet than a pissed off kid. So there's a great economy of language. The music is loud, raw, and simple. And I mean that like in a not overworked way. I don't mean that it's elementary to play. Kurt was a very conflicted guy. And that's kind of an understatement. He dealt a lot with depression. From an early age. Right. From what I've read, he had a lot of anxiety issues. Mm -hmm. People always talk about his, like, stomach pains he had. And that, to me, sounds like kind of anxiety-related, like a functional abdominal pain kind of thing. He even claims that as one of the reasons he did a lot of drugs. Yeah, and he did do a lot of drugs. He married Courtney Love, and they really built their relationship on their mutual love of heroin. She says it, he says it. Like, it was really an integral part to their early courtship and the first part of their marriage. And interestingly, he knew it. You know, he knew that this was bad. He knew that this was not something that was good for him. Sustainable. He was a very aware person. Yeah, he talked to his uncle about it, and he's like, I just can't kick it. I just can't quit. I hate that this thing has this control over me. I know I need to quit, but I just can't. Yeah, he went into rehab. A couple of times. Yeah. He overdosed, I think, six times. And he also tried to kill himself several times. Yeah. At least once in Rome. But that was sleeping pills, interestingly, not heroin. And it was also done while Courtney was in the room. And it seemed more like a ploy to get her attention than an actual attempt. He didn't go off by himself. He didn't use heroin. He didn't, you know, I don't know. I've always kind of questioned that. Right, and then he even has a strong family history of suicide. He has three family members that killed themselves. So it seems like, yeah, the family has some some history there. From an early age, he was very fascinated by suicide. He discussed it a lot. He talked about it with his friends. He wrote about it in his journals, which all of he kept copious amounts of journals, which have all been published since then. Oh my God, if I die, don't publish my journals. I already have the rights. So. I'm telling you just to Story Nation, please do not let him do that. Or if he does, buy them all and send my kids to really good colleges. So yeah, Kurt was a conflicted guy. Had drug use had depression, had learning disabilities, I guess you'd say, ADHD. So how did he die? There was heroin. Of course. But unlike the other 27 Club members, there was also a shotgun. He shot himself after injecting, like, enough heroin to kill 17 horses. Right, and that does come into play in the conspiracy theories surrounding this. Right, so I think that every single one of the people we've discussed has become the subject of one conspiracy theory or another. Let's work backwards this time. Okay. So, Kurt Cobain has, and maybe this is because it's more recent, maybe it's because there's more media attention, people have more access to the information. He has an extremely convoluted conspiracy about his death. And of course, everyone thinks that the lovely Miss Courtney Love had something to do with it. Where to start with this? So, Kurt was found dead in a room above his garage at a Seattle home after he'd been missing for... There were several things about the crime scene that made people question whether or not he could have actually pulled the trigger and fired the shot into his own skull. Among those were the fact that there were no fingerprints present on either the gun or the shell casing for the shotgun that he used. Also that he was on an extremely high amount of heroin. Yes, three times the lethal dose of heroin. 
that amount of heroin. The idea that he had enough motor control to even get the gun at an appropriate angle or walk to the side and put a suicide note up. It, it's just very strange that, that that level of heroin was found in the system. In all of the investigations that have ever been conducted since toxicology has been keeping records, there has never been a suicide in which the victim had that concentration of drugs in his system. Speaking of the suicide note. Okay, so there's a theory about the suicide note. A lot of people speculate that it was traced. Right, because like we said, he had all of those journals Mm -hmm. in his own handwriting. Right, and the tense doesn't line up. If you analyze it linguistically, which forensic linguists have done, which that's a job that I want... The tense jumps around all over the place. Like, sometimes it's present, sometimes it's past, sometimes it's future. And the ideas are very disparate. Like, there's not a central thesis guiding the composition, which is unusual. Also, there are words that are scrawled in a similar handwriting at the bottom that don't appear to have been traced. Interestingly, Courtney Love left a backpack at the home of their lawyer when she went to visit her, and the lawyer turned it over. The lawyer was Frances Bean's godmother. She was a very close family friend. She turned it over to an investigator that Courtney Love had hired, and he looked in it and found a sheet that looked like a practice sheet for the bottom half of that letter, in which the letters that were used were practiced multiple times over and over again. And then Courtney Love did come out and just read the suicide note. It was a recording that was read at the memorial. She had the entire crowd call him an asshole. She was like, say it. Say he's an asshole. They all said he's an asshole. And she's like, tell him he's a fucker. And they all said it. Which is a really odd thing to do. Which I get that you're pissed that he did it. And she kept saying it was inevitable. It was going to happen. She was just, her manner at the time was really strange. But Courtney Love is always strange. Oh, yeah. And there was one more thing about the gun. The shotgun shell was on the wrong side for him to have fired at himself. In reality, all these conspiracy theories are interesting and fun and do make you think this was a really troubled guy. And he had a lot of problems. And still the most likely thing that happened is that he was desperate. And he killed himself. When he was 27? Just happened to be. Do you think he killed himself so he would die at the same age as these icons? Well, that is another conspiracy. Some people do think that. No, I don't. I think it just happened to be. So, interestingly, it also seems that Kurt Cobain may have sort of predicted his own death. He said, if you die and you're completely happy, your soul somewhere lives on. I'm not afraid of dying. Total peace after death. Becoming someone else is the best hope I've got. So it seems like he was very content, sort of romanticized the idea of dying young. Well, then he quotes Neil Young in a suicide note saying, it's better to burn out than to fade away. It's a good quote. Excellent quote. So working backwards, chronologically, Jim Morrison. Yes. Was out with his friends in L.A. drinking less than a year before he died. And he was just mourning the recent death of his fellow musicians and friends like Janis Joplin. Jimi Hendrix had just died a few weeks before. And the group just really hit hard. They were talking about all these recent deaths. He told his friend, you're drinking with number three. That's right number three and then of course under murky circumstances he died less than a year later there's a lot of controversy surrounding jim morrison's death mainly because his girlfriend pamela who later started going by pamela morrison even though they weren't married 
crazy. Was in France with Jim and he died and she had to communicate with the emergency services people and she didn't so much speak of the French. So there was a lot of communication trouble and what compounded that and made it even more murky was the fact that she was trying to cover up her own drug use. So before they got there, she flushed all the heroin and like kind of cleaned up the scene. And she and two of their friends who were living in France continually insisted to the medical investigators that Jim had never used drugs, not even a little, not even pot. And so upon her insistence, the medical examiner filled out that the cause of death on the death certificate as natural causes, believing that Morrison had had a heart attack brought on by drinking in hot weather, followed by taking a hot bath. Only in France. Morrison had overdosed, and one of the commonly accepted, like, folk remedies for a heroin overdose, because it was apparently a thing, was to get in a cold bath and, like, shock your system. But she ran him a hot bath, and he died in the bathtub. And she and her friends did conceal, try to conceal his identity, saying his name was Douglas James Morrison, and he was a famous American poet. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the ways he got into the cemetery. Right. Along with... Oscar Wilde and Chopin and a lot of other famous artists and musicians in Paris. Yes, and his friend chose the plot that he did. He was originally offered the plot next to Oscar Wilde, but his friend decided that that was too conspicuous and he didn't want people trampling all over the place coming to the grave like it was some sort of tourist attraction. Didn't work out so well. It's become quite a tourist attraction. Speaking of great bugs... Oh, yeah, there's a really great book called Stairways to Heaven. It's a photo essay on the grave sites of famous musicians. And Morrison's is one of the more remarkable fan-created monuments. And the thing survived pretty well until the song The End was used by Francis Ford Coppola in his film Apocalypse Now. And the Doors renaissance really started. Just like Queen and Wayne's World. Just like it. So just before Jim Morrison's death was Jimi Hendrix. And his death and the stories that go around it um, really just so fit with his mythos. Like, he had a song called The Ballad of Jimmy in 1965 dedicated to the memory of Jimmy. It really seems like he's talking about his own death. You know, this came out five years before he died. And lyrics include, Many things he would try, for he knew soon he'd die. Now Jimmy's gone, he's not alone, his memory still lives on. Five years. This he said, he's not gone, he's just dead. And remember, he died five years later, on September 18th, 1970. But Jimmy was kind of obsessed with his own demise. While he was in Morocco, he got a tarot card reading, which I'm really sad that I didn't give Jimi Hendrix a tarot card reading. But the death card was drawn during the reading, and from that point on, he proceeded like he was a condemned man. It's like a scene from a movie when the death mm-hmm. card shows, and even though if you know anything about tarot, the death card does not actually mean you're going to die. In most cases, no. Even though his friends all told him that's not what it meant, he was stuck on that idea. Right, and he told people he probably wouldn't live to be 28. He frequently talked about his life like it was over. Even though he had plans for the future, he was going to go and learn how to formally read music so he could play with Miles Davis. That was his plan for the next year, which, oh my God, why didn't that happen? Can you imagine that album? That would be amazing. so sad. So there are also some, there's weirdness and controversy about that death. Right, well, just like Jim Morrison, he died in a hotel room with his girlfriend and drugs. Mm. 
Mm, yeah, not, I wouldn't in recommend. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend doing that if I were you, because like apparently the girls just freak out. She tried to sue the emergency personnel that responded to the call about Jimmy's death by saying that he had been alive when she rode with him in the ambulance. But funny thing was, she didn't ride with him in the ambulance, and she just called attention to the fact that she had not called emergency services and that she had abandoned his body and was nowhere to be found when the emergency personnel arrived. So she really just ended up making herself look like an asshole. And it was her bottle of sleeping pills. Yeah. Another interesting point about was this a suicide comes from Eric Burden, who is a member of the Animals and War, and he played with Jimmy all the time. There's actually the last musicians that he played with. Mm -hmm. He went up and jammed with them when they were playing in London. And in the original Rolling Stones article about this death, Eric Burden commented that Hendrix had left behind in his girlfriend's apartment a suicide note, which was a poem several pages in length. Of course, he wouldn't show this to anybody. No, why would you? I mean, it's just, you know, really compelling evidence that the electric rock god meant to kill himself. And... Pretty much everyone that knows him says that he did not kill himself, but it's a little bit of a conspiracy there. I think years later the note was examined and it was determined that it was just song lyrics. Which is still cool. Found some song lyrics by Jimi Hendrix. That'll get you some money on eBay. You know who else died writing song lyrics? Who else died writing song lyrics? Hank Williams. In the back of a Cadillac. Drinking liquor, writing song lyrics. In the back of a Cadillac when he died. God. Is there any better way to go? Yeah. Yeah, like not when you're 29. How about that? So in addition to the questions of suicide versus accident that surrounded Hendrick's death, similar questions were asked about Janis Joplin, who had famously said, maybe I won't last as long as other singers, but I think you can destroy your now by worrying about tomorrow. She was found in the hotel in LA. Interestingly, she had showed some really classic signs of suicidal behavior, going out of her way to tell people that she loved them and sort of giving some things away. Did she give away her jewelry? calculator did you just make a richard peck reference (laughs) might have so the main component in this sort of like huh is that she went to her lawyers the week before and changed her will to include her mother father and sister who had previously been excluded and that's caused a lot of people to go hmm maybe perhaps perchance it was not an accident And some people think there is some shady business around Brian Jones' death. Before we continue, I have to, like, confess that I totally buy into the Cobain thing. Like, I'm on board with that. And I know it's crazy. That's just because you watched the documentary. It was so good. Soaked in bleach. Go watch it. It's on Netflix. Extremely biased. Um... Yeah, bias is fun. I have no reason to be unbiased about Kurt Cobain's death. It's not like I'm testifying. Other than the Kurt Cobain thing, like this is the one that I find like the most compelling and the most interesting. There's been a lot of jibba-jabba about Brian Jones' death possibly being related to money concerns about Stone's royalties or the idea that he might sue them for rights to the name. A lot of people, including the other Rolling Stones, felt that it was shady. Well, it's complicated by the fact that Jones was a lifeguard and he died in a drowning accident. (laughs) 
while there were three other people there? Yeah, people people say that their manager put a hit out on him. Which he was a young guy at the time, maybe. I don't know. Like, I can kind of see it. And then there's also this article that says that the other guy that was at the house, his name was Thurgood, said that it was me that done Brian. I did it. Nobody actually believes it, but they're, you know, unless you want to. Like, a lot of his fans do. But they believe that the other guy that was present that night either accidentally killed him during horseplay and tried to cover it up or he murdered him so a lot of people think that there's no way this was an accident that somebody had to have wanted him dead so question we always ask is why do we tell this story there's something we love about this there's something we love about these amazing musicians that embodied their current time embody that youth culture that makes us want them to stay at that age. They become what their music was about. We have Brian Jones. Brian Jones was a rebel with the blues. We have Jimi Hendrix. The electric rock god. We have Janis Joplin. The hippie blues mama of San Francisco. And Jim Morrison. The sex symbol philosopher. And Kurt Cobain. The reluctant revolutionary. All of these people are now frozen in time. They will forever be what they represented. And it's sad to think, but it is sad to think that we will never get more music from these people. What would a Miles and Hendrix album have been like? What would it have been like if you had Brian Jones go on and form another band? What kind of collaborations would Janis Joplin have had in 1980? What would her duet with Willie Nelson have sounded like? You cannot help but think of the amazing music that Dave Grohl has made. Oh, man. Every time I was reading about Cobain and like people talking about how he had to die because he was so part and parcel of this youth movement, it was the youthful rebellion that he embodied. I've thought about Dave Grohl and I've kind of thought, I don't think that he had to die. I think that that is a romantic notion. And I think that's what the entire 27 Club is, is just a romanticization of that live fast die young and leave a good-looking corpse idea. And you have to wonder how much of the character or the brand that these people have assumed is because of our projections upon them by making them into the rock and roll pantheon, these demigods of their subgenres, with no two duplicating, all of them being such unique and independent characters. You have to wonder if they would have that same legacy had they continued making music and their music had evolved beyond its original form. Right, so I guess the important question is, is it better to burn out than to fade away? I have to tell you, I kind of think that's just a story.